Today I'm going to open up a new section in John chapter 7 and uh, we have been talking about um, life essentials up till now. That's the subsection of the book of John. Today I want to start talking about trouble at the Temple Mount. Trouble at the Temple Mount. Um, and we are going to look at that. The name of the sermon today is Feeling Rejected. And uh, I don't know about you, but from time to time in life people can sort of reject you because of the way you are, where you're from, uh, what your circumstances are, but uh, in our case, many times because of what we believe. Well, I pray this speaks to your heart today. So if you've got your Bibles open to John chapter 7, we'll read just a short section. I am taking a big bite of John chapter 7 today, and I'm doing that on purpose. It's a narrative section. We're only going to read a short passage, but I'm going to refer to a rather long passage today, and we'll see how far I get. If I don't get done in a decent amount of time, we'll just stop Next Sunday and the following Sunday, there will be sermons having to do with the Christmas season. They'll bless your heart. And then uh, in January, a series of sermons right through the end of January that are very particular and, uh, and are sort of a, a little hiatus in our John study, and we'll pick that up again in February. So right now, I will get going on this, and um, I would say it this way. If the book of John were a movie, then uh, you would certainly notice the change in the background musical score. Uh, things are changing. Now, you say, what do you mean by that? Well, how many of you have ever seen the movie Jaws? Maybe Jaws 1, 2, 3, 33, whatever. But you've seen it. I mean, I don't know how many of them there are, but I, I've seen it. And uh, as, as that big toothy shark starts approaching, the music in the background, you know what I'm talking about, it changes, right? And it's building up to something. It's da 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 Da-dum, da-dum, da-dum. You know how it is. And it goes on and gets you, you start getting nervous. And, you know, I, I got to thinking about using this illustration. I said, I think I'm going to go watch the movie. But then I said, nah, maybe not at Christmas. I'll do it at another time. So in any event, uh, but the, the music changes. It gets intense. It speeds up. Well, think of it this way. We've come to John chapter 7, the opposition. You know, we had Jesus had his year of popularity. Then he had his year of, uh, of the beginning to have confrontation. And now then he's right toward his, in the middle of his third year and the opposition is really growing. And so think of it in this sense, uh, the music is intense, it speeds up, and uh, we're building up to something. Last week we left off with Jesus doing something unthinkable in our day. He turned around, looked at the crowds, knew that it wasn't real, and he said, uh, you know, if you don't eat, eat my body and drink my blood, and if you don't hate your mother, your father, your brother, the sister, and all these things, you can't be my disciples. And the Bible says in John six sixty six that many of his disciples following him no more. They just left. That was it. They'd gone that far. They didn't go any further, and they walked away. So I need to address something. Before I move into the sermon, let me answer a question that keeps coming up, and that is this. People say, well, Pastor Phil, if they were his disciples, then how did they actually walk away? Well, every time you see the word disciple in the New Testament, it means learner or follower, but it doesn't necessarily mean totally committed and dedicated. So there are true disciples of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then there are those that are false, or they are professors, but they are not possessors. So the question comes up, Pastor Phil, how can we know if someone is a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Now, I'm going to give a whole sermon to these two verses in John 10, 27, and 28, but the answer to this question is very simple. Listen to John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. This is the greatest way to know if I'm a true disciple, 
if others are disciples of the Lord. The first thing, my sheep hear my voice. He's spoken to us. We've heard it and we've responded. Second, he knows us. You know, people always talk about knowing God. Matthew 7 talks about people in the end days going to say, God, we knew you. We did this. We did that. We were in your presence. We walked with you. We feasted with you. And he said, I never knew you. Wow. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And here's the kicker. They follow me. Doesn't mean they never slip up. Doesn't mean they ever have a moment of doubt. But they continue to follow. Now, look, if I had to say this in the simplest form, True disciples of Jesus Christ begin to follow Jesus, and they do not stop. Can I get an amen? Amen. This is true. They begin, and they do not stop. Away forever is the idea that salvation is a free ticket to heaven. It's a get-out-of-hell-free card, and that's the end of it. No, no. It's the beginning of a relationship. It's the doorway into a walk with Jesus. He says, follow me. This is what we are invited to do. Now, let me ask you, have you ever experienced rejection in your life? And I know you have. We all have in some fashion. I remember as a kid, I was so little and skinny, and they used to make fun of me when I was a kid trying to go to recess and play basketball with everybody, and we'd be standing there in our gym shorts, and I was so small. I know you can't imagine it now, but I was so small and so skinny. They'd say, hey, Winfield, what's that hanging? Is that a string hanging out of your short? Oh, that's your leg. I'm sorry. I, they would, I was just, and I was the last picked every time. I, I felt like I was just always rejected. Maybe you had something like that. Maybe you didn't get included in things at college or some event or maybe not stuff in the workplace or maybe because of your faith you get rejected. But you know what I'm talking about, this sense of being on the outside, being rejected. Well, in the life of Jesus, his rejection is getting to the boiling point when we get to John chapter 7. It was predicted in John 1.11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. It goes back further than that, all the way back in Isaiah 53.3, 800 years before the event, Isaiah prophesied that he would be despised and rejected of men, and he was. And so that's the way it is. Now, as I said, we're going to take a big bite of this chapter today. I'm going to move through it quickly, but I want to read nine verses. Would you just stand with me and let's read verses 1 through 9, and we're going to cover all the way through 36, Lord willing. So let us get going by looking at verses 1 through 9, and as is our custom, let's lift our voice and read God's Word together. Ready? After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee For he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world." For even his brothers did not believe in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not come yet, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go on to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them... He remained in Galilee. And Father, add your blessing to the preaching and teaching of your word today. I pray that you'd open our eyes and ears and hearts. 
that we would be able to understand and to obey your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Now, if I had to give a simple outline of the whole chapter, chapter 7, it would go like this. Verses 1 to 9 is about doubt. His family doubted him. That's sort of hard to imagine, you know. They grew up with him. He was the oldest son. He was a half-brother because his father was God, not Joseph. But he grew up in the household. They had to have known he was different. They had to see that what he did was right and his behavior was different. And then, of course, there's the miracles. I mean, they saw all of this. Verse number 5 says, his brothers did not believe in him, his brethren. Uh, The idea is both his brothers and his sisters. And we know who they are. They're listed in Luke. And so in Mark and Luke. So uh, they, they doubt by his family. And then verses 10 to 36, it's all about debate. Everyone debated with him. The crowds of pilgrims coming to the feast, the Jewish religious leaders, the residents of Jerusalem, everybody had something to say. They debated. It was all about debate. Now, we won't get to this section, 37 to 53. Then it was about division. They either believed him or they rejected him. And we'll cover that, as I say, in the future. Now, Jesus dealt with criticism and animosity from his family, the religious Jews, the temple authorities, the residents of Jerusalem. And as Jesus dealt with them, he serves to us as an example for how we are to deal with criticism. Now, as I said, a long passage, a big bite, but just keep your eyes on Jesus in the passage and you will greatly benefit. How did Jesus handle rejection? On your sheet, write a few things down. The first thing I'll say is Jesus was patient with family doubt. He was patient with them. I don't know about you, but one of the hardest places to be what God really wants us to be is in our home, especially if you have unsaved family members. Sometimes it is harder to live for God at home than it is at a Las Vegas casino. Because at the casino, I mean, you can expect it, but you don't expect your family to just reject you wholeheartedly and to be against you. And I know you know what I'm talking about. How many of you have found that um, living for Jesus, you've come to faith, living for Jesus and having any kind of, let's say, convictions or you actually have beliefs by which you live, how many of you that has caused at least some discomfort and uh, discord in your homes? Would you just raise your hand? Most of you. Well, that's the way it is. By the way, Jesus said very clearly in the Scriptures, he said, and I know we think in mind, in our mind, we think, well, Jesus comes to a family and everything's perfect. Well, Jesus said just the opposite. He said, when I come, he says, instead of bringing, you know, absolute peace, he said, it's going to be a problem. He says, I've come and there's going to be division, mother and father, brother and sister, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law, and all those, there's going to be, they're just going to set things uh, at odds and until people also come to faith in him. So it was no different for the Lord. If you have kids, parents, in-laws, siblings, or cousins that don't understand your commitment to God's purpose for your life, keep in mind you're in good company because Jesus' kinfolks did not appreciate his calling either. Do bear in mind that when Jesus acted holier than thou, he wasn't acting. He was holy. How many of you believe the Lord Jesus was perfect as he claimed to be? Would you raise your hand? He's sitting, now look, your, your eternity depends on a perfect sacrifice that Jesus offered on the cross. Our, our salvation depends on it. He was sinless. He was perfect. He didn't sin in thought, deed, action, none of it. He was sinless. And so it, um, you can imagine, boy, if you're just living with somebody that's perfect, it really made them 
feel bad. Now, I want to give three things under that thought. Uh, the calendar meant something to Jesus. It says in verse 1, after he, these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. Verse 2, the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. It's very significant. The calendar meant something. Verse 7 says, after these things, or after this, you need to understand there were six months that passed by from the festival that was going on in chapter 6, uh, the Passover, to where we come now to the festival of the booths or the tabernacles. So there is six months have transpired. And now then, this feast of the tabernacle was one of the highest and holiest feasts of the year. It was one of three that was demanded of all Jews. They had to show up in Jerusalem for three feasts. First one was the Passover, which he had been at last time. The next one was the Feast of First Fruits or Pentecost. And then this last one here in the year is this Feast of, of Ingatherings, or that is the Feast of Harvest, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, it became a Thanksgiving-type celebration. It was at this time of the year that the full harvest came in, and everybody came together for the celebration of the provisions of food. There was all kinds of feasting and all kinds of eating that went on. It was a time to celebrate the provision of food. Now, it's ironic, to be honest, that while the Jews were gathered in their tabernacles commemorating their time in the wilderness that God had fed them, now they're celebrating the wonderful provisions of God. Here they are on their roof of their homes in little huts, living in outside in little huts outside the city or, or camping, as it were, to, rem, to commemorate their time in the wilderness and celebrate the provisions of God. They're celebrating the food, and there stands the bread of life right in front of them. That's what the whole chapter 6 was about. I am the bread of life. They couldn't make the connection there. His father, Jesus' father, our father, controlled this timing. He said, I didn't come to do your bidding, but the will of the Father. And if that's true, the question comes, well, why didn't Jesus go up with his brothers? Well, he, want, he did go up, but he went up, if you read the next, cha- next section, 10 and following, you'll find that he went up secretly uh, because he did, not want to be, he did not want to be forced to come out too early. He didn't want there to be a triumphal entry way before the time. By the way, Jesus was never forced to do anything by anyone. He never yielded to any pressure. He didn't yield to the pressure of Satan in the wilderness. When Satan tried to get him to short-circuit God's will, he was going to be he was going to become all the things that Satan tempted him with, but it wasn't time yet. And so uh, he did everything at the right time. So Jesus never did anything because anybody pressured him. A little bit later, the Roman guards are going to say to him in the garden, you're coming with us. Then the Jewish priests are going to say, now you're going to the cross. And Jesus could say essentially, oh, yes, I am going, but not because you say so. But I go to do my Father's will, and for this reason I came forth. He came to die. We're celebrating. The other night we had the two nights in a row. We had the beautiful display of the manger scene. Jesus came. We've got trees and lights and celebration. Thank God he came. In order to go to the cross, he had to first be born in the world. But he went from the cradle to the cross because that is the reason that he came. He said, I'm going, but not because you say I am priests and soldiers. I'm going to that cross because it's my Father's will. Is there a lesson here for us, something about timing, something about keeping the feast? Those feasts were important. Jesus didn't skip it. He was always in the synagogue when it was time to be there on on Saturdays. He was there, as was his custom. The gospels say more than once. Here it's time for the festival. He was always there. Is there something for me to learn? 
Uh, I think this is so important and true. The world is always going to try to provide a calendar, an agenda for you, a plan for you. And the world, the world system is going to try to, as it is controlled by the prince of the power of the air, it's going to try to give you a calendar that always contradicts the calendar that God has for us. Uh, He's going to try to keep you from the will of God. For instance, the sports calendar. NCAA football, NFL football, NCAA basketball, Little League baseball, girls softball, high school sports, show choir, the weather calendar, the entertainment calendar, TV guide, movie releases, and on and on and on it goes. are always going to be provided to try to get you from doing something that God wants you to do. You say, Pastor, do you have a problem with all of those things? No, I don't. You say, what are you saying that for then? Well, because I don't have any problem with them unless it takes the place of God's will that you not forsake the assembling of, your, of yourselves together in the church of God on Sunday. Now, I'm certainly going to make a bunch of you mad when I say this, and I'm tempering myself and keeping my voice as low as I can because I'm not angry, but you moms and dads, When you allow sports and anything else to take God's place on Sunday, the Lord's day, when you allow that to happen, you're teaching your children, well, we will be faithful to coming to church and serving him unless there's something more fun to do. And God's people said, please listen to me. Do not be surprised when your children have no use for the house of God. When you've allowed them and you've taught them and let them learn to make the choice to do what's fun first. Oh, it's so important. Life is not just about doing what's fun. It's about doing what's right. And it's right to be in the Lord's house. And so the calendar meant something to him. And let me move on. The criticism meant nothing to him. Verses 2 to 7, his brothers think this. They say, hey, look. Uh, you have got all these messianic skills and this messianic, uh, you know, syndrome about you. Uh, what you need to do is get out of this backwater area and you need to get down to Jerusalem because anybody that's anybody goes to Jerusalem to make a point. And so you get down there, get away from the sticks, and you get down there and you show all these great deeds there and really then your disciples are going to be confirmed. You know, you're losing a lot of disciples, Jesus. You need to get down there and you need to make a show and let's go. You go with us. <laughs> They said, it's time to be a celebrity. Verses 6 to 7 said that. It said, uh, Jesus said to them, well, look, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not yet going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. They said, it's time to be a celebrity. He said, it's not time to be a celebrity. He said, uh, it's not, uh, the, the world can't hate you, Jesus, uh, or it can't hate you, you brothers of mine, at this point, because you are like the world. The world would be hating itself. The brothers belong to the world. They share its inability to hear the call of God. Uh, the world loves its own, so the brothers are secure from hatred. They belong to this world. Pull over, make an application, watch this. A test of your maturity in Christ is how often you face off with the world. The New Testament says, beware when all men speak well of you. If everybody, if you're just, you know, jolly good fellow and everybody's going along and let's just have a, man, you're just wonderful. And and it's because you're not standing for Jesus and you're not saying the right, you're not letting people know that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because you cannot, all they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 
It is so important for us to understand. A test of maturity in Christ is how often you face off with the world. How often are you going against the flow, cutting across the grain, swimming against the tide? There was a lady in Memphis that told Adrian Rogers, pastor at Bellevue one time, Oh, Brother Rogers, everyone in Memphis loves you. He says, Then I have failed greatly, and that's a great slander against my testimony. There's a lesson here for us in seeking to live for God. The world will always have a calendar for you, an agenda to live by, and if you don't, they will criticize you. But the criticism meant nothing to Jesus. If we're pleasing the Father in heaven and His Son, Jesus, don't let the criticism stop you. The cross meant everything to him then in verses 8 and 9. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks of his hour. He says, my hour has not yet come, over and over and over. Uh, it says it in 2, 4, 7, 6, and 8, thir- verse 38, chapter 8, verse 20, chapter 12, verse 23, 13, 1. And then he finally says, my hour has come in John 17, 13 and 17 uh, for me to be offered. So this is very important. The cross meant everything to him. That was his hour. And the word for hour is not chronology. Uh, The word for hour is appropriate time. We think of it this way. We might ask a question. Is it the right time to buy a house? Is it the right time to let our daughter start dating? Is it time to invest in gold? In other words, is it the appropriate moment? Is it right? This issue isn't one of looking at the clock, but looking at the conditions. Pay very close attention to this. Jesus reminds us that his motive is not to wow us. He doesn't want to be popular. He doesn't want to reach celebrity status. His motive is not to wow us. His motive is to save us from our sins in this passage. That's so important. And while the time is perfect to draw a crowd, the time was not perfect to die on the cross. It couldn't happen yet. There was an appointed moment in time that he had to die on the cross. He had to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He had to die on the Passover moment. He was our Passover. That's six months in the future. What you're reading and studying in chapter 7 and 8 in the book of John is six months before Jesus hung on the cross. It gives you an idea of where we are. The will of the Father does not involve a spectacle in Jerusalem. The will of the Father involves a sacrifice in Jerusalem. My time has not yet come, he said. Number two, and write it quickly, Jesus was prepared then for public debate. This is verses 10 through 24. We're not going to read all of it, just make a reference or two. Jesus was not afraid to go up to Jerusalem, even though he did slip to Jerusalem secretly. It wasn't time for a triumphal entry. If he'd, if he'd arrived openly, the Jews who were watching for him, it says very clearly here, it says in verse number 12, uh, let's see, verse number 11 says the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? They were hunting for him. So if he went up early, they would have arrested him. But Jesus didn't want that yet. It wasn't time. So when he did arrive, what he did was he went up in the middle of the feast. It says there, <clears throat> he, he went up right in the middle of the feast, verse number 14, into the temple, and he taught. So he went straight to the temple. Let's say Wednesday or Thursday of the week. The celebration went from Sunday to Sunday. So maybe Wednesday or Thursday, right in the middle of the feast. He went up, slipped into the temple, sat down, opened up, and began teaching the people. Then everybody saw him. 
and there he was. <laughs> he wasn't afraid. He just did it the way that was the right, and he did it at the right time. He took his teaching prime time. You said, what do you mean? Well, it would have been equal to Jesus stepping out on the 50-yard line, grabbing the microphone, and stopping all the festivities and making himself known. That's what he did. Jesus did that. These four groups of people reacted to him. Now, I have provided that sheet, and I, and I want you to I want to reference that sheet once again. If you didn't pick it up coming in, he, he made some incredible claims about his person here, about who he was. And I just want to say one more time, when you hear somebody say something silly like Jesus never claimed to be divine, he never claimed to be the Son of God, he never claimed to be God come in the flesh, that shows just total ignorance of what the Bible actually says because he claimed it over and over and over and over. Make sure you understand Jesus is God who came in the flesh to die for our sins. This is not, he's not anything less than that. He is exactly what he said. And so I hope that you'll use that uh, as something that will help you as you grow. And so, uh, so they debated, or so they, uh, uh, Jesus got ready for this public debate. And what's the first thing that they debated? Well, they debated his character. They debated his character. And so, verse number 12, there was a lot of complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he's good. Others said, nope, on the contrary, he deceives the people. Big debate. They argued about him. They debated his character. And so, the crowds were of contrary opinions. Now, you've heard this before, but I want to read it. It's very appropriate. C.S. Lewis has a note here in his book, Mere Christianity. Here's what he said. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So folks, I want to tell you, everyone is at the bar, everyone is at the decision point, everyone has to look at the cross and decide, is he Lord, is he liar, or is he lunatic? Well, I'm going to tell you right now, he is Lord of all. He is the Lord God himself. They debated this, they debated his credentials, and I won't belabor this point, verses 14 through 20, the Jews wanted to know this, they didn't want to know, what, what are you talking about? I don't agree with your doctrine. Nope, they couldn't refute his doctrine. He quoted the Old Testament like nobody that ever heard, but they did do this, where'd you go to seminary? Where'd you study? You don't have any credibility. This is what they did. Jesus focused on the very word of God. They focused on the schools of men. His answer, his answers that he gave them was, I got my information from the Bible from the Father because he's the author. And folks, Jesus didn't back down or apologize for his doctrine. Neither should we back down when it comes to the truth. We hear things like this, well, when you say Jesus is the only way, the truth and the life, well, that sure puts a lot of people, there's just got to be more than one way to heaven. Listen, folks, hang on to what the Bible has said. Don't try to fit it into the culture of the times. Hang on to the word of God. He didn't back down. Now, we got to be nice, tactful, kind, humble, patient. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but he must patiently teach that God might give them repentance and let them come to faith. So we're patient, we're kind, we're all of those things, but we never back down. 
on what God has said. Jesus didn't back down. Jesus never tried to reconcile his teaching with worldly philosophy. He never tried to show that his teaching was compatible with the world. And folks, we cannot afford to try to do this, contextualize, contemporize, or harmonize Bible truth with the culture. If we do, we dilute the truth and we stop short of sharing the life-giving gospel. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Anything else is not the word of God. Too many believers today are embarrassed by the doctrine of the Bible. We want to be acceptable to the pastor, yes, but also to the patrons at the bar. Jesus spoke what the Father told him only. Jesus revealed why they did not believe in them in this verse in 16 and 17. He tells, here's why you don't believe. God's will was not about them. It was about him. They were about themselves, these teachers, these religious leaders, these temple, these temple uh, Sanhedrin that were in charge and running everything. Look at verse 18, an important teaching. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. And I'll only read that. He who speaks from himself on his own authority is only seeking his own glory. So the way to say it is this. They speak from themselves for themselves. They wanted glory. They wanted whatever it took to maintain power. They were self-seeking, not God-seeking. But if they just read the scriptures that they had in their hands and obeyed, the Bible says, Deuteronomy 4.29, you will seek the Lord with your, your God and you will find him if you seek for him with all your heart and soul. First Chronicles 28.9, if you seek him, he will let you find him. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. They weren't seeking him. They were seeking themselves. Boy, self-centered religion. Jesus uh, said this. He said, we know as much about the Father as we intend to obey. Now, if, I don't, if you don't get anything else I say today, then make sure you get this. Let me read this verse in verse number 17. Sometimes... People say, you know, I really would like Pastor Phil to say something I can apply. Well, listen to this. If anyone wills to do his will, this is Jesus speaking, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. In essence, Jesus said we will know as much about the Father as we intend to obey. You've heard me say this before. We are as close to God as we want to be. Let me expand on that. We understand as much about God's word as we are willing to obey. We understand as much. I told Marty in the first service, I'm so glad that he put this running, this, this place out here for me to run around on because I can just really get out here and get right in your face. Here's what I would really like you to think about with me this morning. We have this terrible habit of contemplation and consideration of what God has said. Abraham our father in the faith, father of the faithful in the Old Testament, was told one day by, the, by uh, the father in heaven, Abraham, that son of yours, that boy Isaac, that son of promise that I gave you, that one, I want you to take that son, your son Isaac, go up a mountain, I'm going to show you. And he said, I want you to sacrifice him on top of that mountain. There was no argument. There was no hesitation. Abraham had learned that God was faithful and to be trusted, and he believed in his heart. Well, okay, if I take him up there and sacrifice him, God can raise him from the dead. And so he didn't argue. He picked up the bucket with the fire. He got and saddled up. He saddled up the donkey. He got his son, and now off they go. It wasn't contemplation. It wasn't uh, commiseration. He didn't stop and think about it and say, well, let me give, you, give me three days and let me think. No, 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 no. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. 
Many of us never get to the place of understanding neither the word of God or the will of God because we do not have a predisposition of obedience. Would you like to know what God would like you to do? Then in the morning, get on your knees, open your Bible, get on your knees before you read a single word. Say, Lord, I am your servant. I am here to listen and obey. Show me and teach me in your word and it's already decided. Obedience is my answer. You will understand the word of God. His will will be revealed to you. But you know what we want to do? We want to plan a trip to California. And we want somebody to turn on and let us see from here to Los Angeles. And we want to see if there's a green light from here to there before we ever take the first step. It doesn't work that way with God. God says, obey me. And we say, I will obey. And when we obey, he opens the way, opens the door, shows us this is the way, walk ye in it. Listen to me, if you don't learn anything else from this sermon today, learn this. You will never know the will of God or obedience of God in your life, dear Christian, until it's already decided I'm going to obey whatever God tells me to do, period. This is how you grow. Oh, this is so critical and crucial in the life of a Christian. They debated everything. They debated his works. They debated. They, uh, we got to remember the location of this passage is Jerusalem. Jesus had just healed the man at the pool of Bethesda just outside the temple grounds. And he'd done it on a Sabbath. Back in chapter 5, 16, and 18, uh, 16 to 18, they had decided, well, he did this on a st- Sabbath. We're going to have to kill him. And then he said, I'm just doing what I see my father did. And then they said, we really got to kill him because he said God was his father making himself equal to God. In verse 19, it reveals that he's still thinking about it. It's been months. It's been a long time since he did that. And Jesus is still thinking about it. And he comes back to them and he said, why do you seek to kill me? And they say, what are you talking about? Who's trying to kill you? He says, well, he said, and he talks about their hypocrisy. He said here, um, I want you to look at it uh, in this passage right here. He said, I did verse number 21. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you the circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I have made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Oh, my goodness. He just showed their hypocrisy. He said, why are you trying to kill me? And you know what they did? They had to break the law to obey the law. What do you mean, Pastor? Well, before Moses ever wrote the law down that he received on Mount Sinai, God had already given a rule. He'd already given a law to Abraham concerning the circumcision of little boys. It was never wrong to do good on the Sabbath, but the Jews applied the laws they were given in a way that would allow them to be in control of everyone. The amazing thing is this, Jesus said, they would do a work on the Sabbath to fix a single part of a little boy's body, but they wanted to kill him, Jesus, because he fixed an entire man's body and gave him, raised him up from his paralysis. In other words, he says, you need to use good judgment. You don't need to just, you're blind by your rule keeping. And by the way, you're applying these things. He said, it's always good to do good any day of the week. And he says, I've made this man whole. You work, but you won't allow me to work and to do good. Then there comes this amazing passage. Uh, this is the world's favorite verse. Judge not lest you be judged. Judge not <laughs> lest you be judged yourself. Judge not. Don't be judging me. Don't be doing this, doing that. Well, they have no context in mind. Don't understand the scriptures. Here's what Jesus does. He gathers the evidence. Gathers the evidence. 
He says things like this, ask the blind man, he'll tell you he has seen me do a great work in his life. Ask the deaf woman, she'll tell you she hears what you're saying, but she's not bothered by the question. Ask that little mute boy over there, he'll talk your head off defending me. Go ask the lame man, he'll run all over town gathering evidence to defend my claims. Go ask the former drunkard, he'll tell you he had a drink of living water that stopped his drunkenness. Go ask the former addict and she'll tell you that she got a new fix and it's permanent. Go ask a former prostitute, the former workaholic, the former abuser, the former thief, the former whatever you want to mention, and they will tell you, I met Jesus and I will never be the same. I'm here to tell you that, I, that an encounter with Jesus brings anybody back from the brink. And it's exactly what he did. Bonnie and I had a privilege on Friday. Bonnie, you knew it had to get in the message, didn't you? We had a privilege on Friday. We went uh, down to Kansas City to my, where my daughter and son-in-law live and Amber is involved in, um, in prison ministry in Kansas, and she goes to Topeka, and she goes to Lawrence and other places. And had a situation set up where we would be able to go in and celebrate Christmas and do just a little bit of tabletop ministry with some prisoners there that are in part of a program called Boys in Blue. Never heard of it, but it's amazing. And uh, I, 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 I shouldn't be proud, but I'm so proud of Amber, I don't know what to do. It's just amazing to see what God is doing. And so we went in <laughs> and we sat down around the tables and they fed them and gave them some silly gifts and things like that. And we sat and we talked to them and Bonnie had a crowd around her and I had a crowd. Amber had a crowd and Eric had a crowd. We all had a crowd around us. And these guys just were just a room full of these guys redeemed by the blood of the lamb. <clears throat> Very doubtful they'd ever come to faith in Jesus had they not ended up in a place like that. And I heard one right after another say, you know, I got 50 years left, but I can handle it because every morning I get up with Jesus. And so they'd say, I did this and I did that and it was terrible and I should have never done it. And I wish somebody had got to me with the gospel before this. And, and he said, but I just want you to know I've got hope. There's a light. There's hope in my life. And I just shared with him and I said things like this. Brothers, I'm so glad to be with my family today because everybody born of the blood of the Lamb is in God's family. And I want you to know that it's all level ground at the foot of the cross. And we had such a good time. I just want you to know the evidence is so strong that Jesus is who he said he was. He was patient with his family and he was prepared for public debate. Number three, Jesus was positive and confident. My time is gone. Let me just say this quickly. How is this? He'd been losing many followers. His family didn't believe him. His countrymen are arguing against him. The religious leader are plotting to capture and kill him. How can he be peaceful? How can he be confident? How can he be so unmovable in his teaching? Well, can't he, can't he moderate his teaching? Can't he compromise with the hierarchy of the Jews? Can't he just go along to get along, fit in a little better? No, he can't. He didn't come to be accepted as a celebrity. He came to be received as the savior of the world. Celebrity Christianity is killing us. Jesus had an unshakable confidence because he knew where he was from. He knew where he was, what he was doing and where he was going. He knew the place of his origination. I have come from the Father to do his will. He knew where he came from. And then he had a plan. He knew the plan for his crucifixion. He knew that he's going to be back in this same location in six months. Six months 
From the moment he's talking in the temple, he's coming back and he will be arrested. He knows what's coming, where he stood. He w- there would be the betrayer's kiss, an arrest in the garden, a mock trial, many beatings, a trip down the Via Dolorosa, a brutal crucifixion, and his final cry, it is finished. But he knew all of this. But the time had not yet come. It had to happen on the Passover day and a day appointed by the Father in eternity past, six months in the future. My hour has not yet come. And folks, Jesus knew he was the Son of God, the man of God, and the will of God, and that he was invincible until the plan of God had occurred in the timing of God to the glory of God. Let me tell you something about you. You want to serve God with your whole heart, but sometimes you're timid, sometimes you're afraid, sometimes you don't want to speak up, sometimes you're afraid of the repercussions and the ramifications and what they might say about you and do to you, what your family might say, what the people at work might say, I might be ostracized, I might be marginalized, they may pick on me. Let me just tell you something, you go on and live for Jesus because this is true of you. This is true of you. The man or woman of God and the will of God is invincible until the plan of God has occurred in the timing of God to the glory of God. No one can touch you until God is done with you. Trust Jesus. Jesus knew the promise of his resurrection. Verse 33 says, I'm going to be with you a little while longer than I go to him who sent me. Jesus knew that the resurrection is following the crucifixion like day follows night. He was going home to the Father. Some believed in Jesus that day in the temple grounds. Most did not. But he was going home to the Father, and those that believed would one day go home to the Father. Today, we've been talking about home for Christmas. We've given some beautiful little ornaments to those families, and we've said that we love you, and God loves you, and we care about you, and we're sorry for your loss. But for those that know Jesus, they've gone home. Jesus knew he was headed home. He knew he had a rough few days in front of him. He knew that the next month, two, three, four, five, six, were going to be terrible. He's going to be crucified. Bad things are going to happen to him. But he's coming back from the dead. There's a resurrection coming, and he's going home to his father. I'm telling you something. You're headed for death. But if you know Jesus as your personal Savior, you're already enjoying life, and it's going to be eternal, and you're going home to your father. You're going home. Some would indeed follow him in eternity, but the majority will seek him and not find him. Where I am, you cannot come, he said. His words here are eerily similar, sadly different, but eerily similar to the words he's going to say in John 14. In John 14, he's going to say to his followers, those disciples who were so sad at his leaving them, he said, I'm coming again to receive you to myself, that where I am, you can be also. But clearly, he says to this group of unbelievers, I am going, and you cannot go with me. Because they don't believe. Some believe, and some do not. Believers are going to go be with King Jesus in his eternal home in heaven. Unbelievers will not. So how do we handle this rejection by family and society and the world at large? Live with confidence and knowledge that there is more than this. There's something better than this. There's someone better, someone more loving, someone more faithful, someone more caring, someone more sacrificial, and someone that is immensely powerful, more than we could imagine or even hope. And this person loved us and died for us. Do you know him? Do you know him? 
away with the idea that salvation is a matter of a free t- get out of hell free card or it's a free ticket to heaven. That's not salvation. Salvation is entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Listen to John seventeen three. This is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent.